What if your expectations of the Christian life were almost totally wrong? One young pastor in Decatur, Alabama, Sean DeMars, recounts an earlier time in his late teens where this was his experience, which almost cost him his life. He writes, I'm in a bathtub. I can't get up. I feel like I'm about to die. Mercury poisoning. The water in the tub has grown cold. Maybe that's why I feel so cold. I've been marinating in my own soup stock for the past two hours. I'm floating in and out of consciousness. Whenever I can concentrate, I begin to pray. Jesus, please save me. Please heal me. I I repent. I put my whole heart into prayer right now. And I cast out any doubt or fear. I know you can heal me. Please heal me. My mom's keys are rattling in the doorknob now, and I hear the door thud shut in the distance. I hear her purse sliding across the counter and her keys landing next to it. I barely recognize her figure if she tries with all her wiry might to pull me out of the tub. I spend the next two days in the hospital. My mom wants to know why I didn't let her know. Why I didn't want to go to the hospital? Why I didn't do something? Mom, Jesus is my doctor. I'm blessed, and I know that he would have healed me. This is me trying to live out what I think is true Christianity. I just got saved two months earlier. I'm fresh out of jail, and I'm walking around the projects where I used to stomp like a tiny teenage giant. I've got a bare back, a few tattoos, and a Bible in my hand. I'm just praying for the opportunity to share the Christ with someone. I meet a man named Roger who invites me into his home. He buys me lunch, and we spend all day talking about the Bible. This guy knows way more than I do. I've never heard anyone spout off so many scriptures in such rapid-fire succession. This guy is legit, I say under my breath. Over the course of the next six months, this man indoctrinates me with the prosperity gospel. Just a few months earlier, I've never even opened a Bible. I have no idea I'm being given arsenic in my Kool-Aid. I take it all. I believe it all. I know it's true. It has to be. It's, it's all right there in Scripture. Look, she touched the hem of his garment and was healed. Look, Jesus couldn't heal them because they didn't have enough faith. Look, all throughout the Old Testament, you see curses for sins and blessings for righteousness, prosperity for the good, pain for the bad. I mean, it's so plain, it's so obvious. But stuff isn't making sense. I'm still without a job. I can't pay my rent. My mom isn't getting saved. And I keep getting cold sores. None of these things should be happening. There must be sin hidden somewhere in my heart. Now I have the flu. I don't have any money to buy groceries. I just need to claim it. I just need to rebuke Satan and his lies and believe that what I've proclaimed in the name of Jesus will surely come to pass. Maybe I'm not tithing enough. Time to double up. I'll get it back 100-fold. Maybe more. I just need to sow in faith but it's still not happening. Roger, hey man, I don't understand. It seems like this stuff isn't working. 
What am I doing wrong? Dude, I don't know exactly what it is, but I know the problem ain't with God or his word. It's got to be something in your heart or in your life. Let's pray about it. Fast forward a year. I'm 19 and married now. We're struggling hard. I can't pay the rent or the electricity bill. And I just lost another job. My wife wasn't saved when we met. She gets saved during the course of our friendship. And somewhere in there, she starts listening to me and taking all this truth I'm giving her. She does wonder, though, about the disconnect. When the ATM receipt says we're 40 bucks in the hole, I rebuke myself, the ATM, and the receipt. I claim my blessing, even in the face of this lie from Satan. I know Jesus is looking down on me, proud of my strength amid such persecution and adversity. In the name of Jesus, I keep claiming what he's promised me. The prosperity gospel and word of faith movement are basically the same thing. But I've never heard those labels before. All the good Bible-loving Baptists fear me because I probably robbed their sons, stole their cars, or vandalized their church. Yet because of my powerful testimony, scores of churches invite me to come and share. I preach a false gospel every time I go. And not once does anyone ever sit down with me and talk with me about the danger to my soul. Not a word. Not a peep. Not to my face, anyway. Now I know they waited respectfully until I left and then talked about themselves, among themselves, about how sad it is to see such passion so misdirected. Brothers and sisters, theology matters. How we study the Bible matters because it affects how we understand God. It affects how we understand ourselves. It affects how we understand sin and suffering and our salvation. You know, each one of us in here today brought with us a perception of what following Jesus looks like. But given enough time living in this fallen world without anybody to teach you sound doctrine, And without any godly believers to challenge us, we can all tend to become spiritually lazy or even misdirected in our passions. For Sean, bad theology almost cost him his life. A faulty understanding that being saved somehow means that all sin and suffering goes away. How would you have counseled Sean? Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If this is your first time with us at CCBC, we are currently in a series through the New Testament letter of Philippians. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul exhorted these dear believers to live out their salvation, to practice what they preach. And as they saw God's work in their lives, they were also to commend the work that God was doing in other people's lives. Follow with me as I read, starting in Philippians 2, verse 12. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I will see him go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. And honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have two kind of main points for us. Sprinkled throughout will be some subpoints, And just to let you know, so you can kind of prepare yourself, point one is much longer than point two. I think point one informs the rest of the passage, even though it's only a few verses. Point number one, your salvation depends on God's work in you, not what you can do for God. Your salvation depends on God's work in you, not what you can do for God. Point number two, your witness for Christ in the world shines bright when you love Jesus more than living your best life now. Your witness for Christ and the world shines bright when you love Jesus more than living your best life now. And beloved, I hope this morning's passage would convict the lazy among us and encourage the faint-hearted among us as we stay focused on Christ together, no matter what we have to face in this life. So point number one, Your salvation depends on God's work in you, not what you can do for God. Beginning right there in verse 12, the Apostle Paul, who's writing 
most likely from a Roman prison to a body of believers in Philippi, has just concluded a section in his letter on a call to humility. Now, last Sunday, we looked at Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, as we learned what the recipe is for preserving and protecting unity in the church. And what did we learn? Well, we learned from Philippians 1, 27 and following that we are to stay focused on, number one, Christ's mission, contending for the gospel, caring for one another above ourselves. But then we also learned that we must stay focused primarily on Jesus Christ himself, God the Son, our Lord. After explaining this glorious and mysterious union of the divine nature and human nature, united into one person, Jesus Christ, the incarnation, God the Son becoming a man, Paul left off in verse 11 with the promise that one day, and beloved, that day is coming, all the universe will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and God will receive the glory that is due to him. But like any good pastor who's worth his salt, Paul says that theology, if it's going to have any effect on us, must be applied to our everyday life. So in verse 12, what does Paul say that the Philippians should do with what they've been taught? What work did they have cut out for them in response to the finished work of Christ that has been accomplished for them. Look again in verse 12. He says this, therefore. Now, if you're studying scripture and that word therefore is there, you have to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. It's, 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 he's making an argument. He's, he's bridging a reason for what he's about to say. And he says this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now here, starting off, Paul begins this next section by first encouraging them. Beloved, isn't that always refreshing when the person you look up to the most encourages you? Every good father and good mother knows that encouraging the good you see in your children will actually breathe life into their life. And here he encouraged them. And he says he hearkens back to the time where they first met nearly 10 years ago and through various reports that have been given since then by stating that the Philippians were an obedient church. Now, they weren't a perfect church. There is no such thing as a perfect church on this side of heaven. That type of church just doesn't exist. But Paul does say, as you have always obeyed. And I think what Paul is trying to say is not that they were a perfect church, but they were certainly marked by a teachable and hungry spirit. In fact, after hearing the gospel and coming to faith, it wasn't very long before the Philippians had entered into a gospel partnership with Paul. Uh, The Philippians actually became what we might consider today as a model missionary sending church, a church that put their money where their mouth is. 
They were committed to support Paul's work in other areas that needed the gospel. And by God's grace, they remained a sending and supporting church for an extended season of Paul's ministry. We'll learn more about that in Philippians 4 when we get there later this fall. Nonetheless, Paul is here addressing them not as a disobedient church, not as a stiff-necked church, not as a hard-headed church, but as a teachable church, a body of believers who were ready to receive further instructions from their dear friend and mentor in the faith. Now, Paul goes on to speak about the most important gift they had ever received in their lives. He speaks about, did you notice there in verse 12, their salvation, how God's work of grace had saved them, rescued them out of darkness, condemnation, and the captivity of sin. But more specifically, Paul now begins to challenge these dear saints by exhorting them to mature in their walks with Christ. He emphasized how their past spiritual growth cannot be a lazy boy pillow they rest on and just kind of coast now. They must, Paul says, press on towards future spiritual growth in their devotion to Christ. He again says right there in verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. He's speaking about the past, right? But then he says, so now, means right now and moving forward, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, whatever he's about to say, he says, you should obey this even when I'm not watching. You should take this serious even when I'm not preaching. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it's not uncommon for some Christians to get a little tripped up on this text because it sounds like, or at least it could sound like, that you have to earn your salvation. Almost like you have to save yourself. Now, if you're new to Christianity and you're wondering, hey, what's the big difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world? I mean, aren't they all basically the same? Well, if you're brand new to Christianity or if you're in your first semester of college and you're in a world religions class, let me just kind of fast forward all the nonsense you're going to hear and just tell you basically what separates Christianity from the rest of most of the world's religions. Most of the world's religions, most of the dead false religions are a works-based salvation. In other words, there's some game plan, there's some checklist that sinful man has to achieve in order to climb back to God. Or even some religions, look inwardly to yourself and you can become God. But biblical Christianity is the exact opposite. Christianity is not about man climbing his way back to God or somehow man looking in himself to be God. No, Christianity is about God coming to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and saving us from eternal destruction. Christ dying 
for our sin in our judgment place and being raised from the dead for our justification. It's about Christ coming from heaven down to earth and radically changing who we are from the inside out and then promising to take us with him to glory. That's Christianity. So again, look with me at verse 12. Paul does not say work for your salvation, but rather work out your own salvation. Now remember, who is Paul writing to? He's writing to men and women who are already believers. For example, go back to Philippians 1. In Philippians 1 verses 1 to 2, he greeted them with this spiritual identity marker. You know, that heavenly dog tag I spoke about last week. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. What are saints? They're those who have been saved, rescued, and set apart for worship and service to God. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? It means to be permanently wed to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. He says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be wondering, does God love me this morning? Listen, if you were in Christ yesterday, you are in Christ today, and there was grace extended to you yesterday, and you woke up this morning, and more grace is extended to you. Grace and peace every day from heaven to earth to all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Here in Philippians 1 verse 12, Paul even calls these dear believers brothers. In fact, if you go back and look at Philippians 1 verse 6, Philippians 1 verse 6, he said that it was God who had already begun the good work in them, a work that he promised to complete in them. Philippians 1 verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So if these are believers, we don't work to earn our salvation, climb the ladder up to heaven. What does Paul mean in verse 12 then, that the Philippians must work out their salvation? Well, let's say for a moment you hung out with me one afternoon and I was standing in the kitchen and I became very hungry, which is not an uncommon thing in the Boylston household to see daddy hungry. Given enough time, the smell of freshly baked bread and the thought of milk and PB&J begins to make my stomach growl. So what do I do? Well, I make the smart decision to act on those hunger pains by opening up the fridge, grabbing a glass of milk, taking out the PB&J, smear it all over that freshly baked bread, and I eat it. And I like it. Well, who is responsible for eating the PB&J? Was it me or the hunger pains inside me? Or was it me or my wife who bought the groceries for me? Well, remember, I didn't create myself, right? God created me through my mom and dad 35 years ago, and he created me with the ability of my body to alert my brain that I'm hungry. And he gave me the hand-eye coordination to move around in the kitchen and fix things like a sandwich. He gave me the knowledge to make the sandwich, whether that was through my parents or through observation. And then I acted on it. I responded to those hunger pains with action. My desire and my will from within 
manifested itself by making the sandwich and eating it. But you see, I acted on what was already given to me. That's what our growth as Christians are like. We don't work to earn our salvation. We can't create this work in ourselves any more than a dead man can create a PB&J sandwich for himself. The eating was first enabled by the hunger pains, and the hunger pains were only possible because I was alive. Beloved, salvation is 100% the supernatural work and gift of God. If you're a Christian, it is God who caused you to be born again. It is God who gives you the ability to have faith and to love him. John says in 1 John 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 5, verse 1, everyone who believes, that's a present active participle, that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's a present passive indicative. In other words, John is saying this, if you are believing in Jesus today, it is only happening because something happened to you. Something caused you to believe in Jesus. That's the Greek verb tense. Never get that backwards. Babies don't tell themselves to be born in their mother's womb. We got that reversed. And the same is true in salvation. You see, by nature, we don't seek God because we don't love God. Read Romans 1, 18 to 32. Read Romans 3, 9 to 18. But God, who is rich in love and mercy, sovereignly chooses to draw sinners to himself and makes them willing to love him, willing to come to him. And he opens the floodgates of heavens and gives new life in them. Paul says this very clear in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn back with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. It's one book before Philippians. And now look with me in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. Paul is going to speak to the Ephesian believers about their life both before and after Christ. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And don't be distracted by the strobe light, even though I just brought it to your attention. (laughs) Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, salvation is something done to us, 
not something we can do to ourselves. Uh, Salvation is not like going to get a grab of milk in the refrigerator. We can go and get it. Or somehow we can look for our uh, hope inside of ourselves and make us new creatures. You see, when God mercifully sought us, the only thing he saw was spiritually dead corpse. God did not look for faith inside of us because he would have been wasting his time. But rather, God searched us, reached into us, took out the heart of stone, gave us a heart of flesh, and created faith that was once not there within us. So in this respect, we are passive in regeneration. Regeneration or being born again is a work of God the Holy Spirit that always precedes faith. That's what our statement of faith teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. But the Bible also says that we are active in our sanctification, which is that ongoing and progressive work of God within us to make us more like Jesus. And that means when God begins a good work in us, when he begins this work of salvation in us, he energizes us and enables us to pursue godliness and to do good works that he prepares for us, which bring him glory. That means this, beloved, this is very important for you to grasp today. This is precisely why theology matters. Our salvation is not a result of our faith plus works. You believe in that and you stand before Jesus, you will die in your sin. That is a works-based righteousness. But salvation is demonstrated. It's revealed by a saving faith in Christ alone that shows itself through works. That's what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, that show this beautiful relationship between God's grace and how he recreates us to want to do good works. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if you are taking notes, I've given you a longer definition for you to just kind of chew on. You can write this down or I can send it to you later. But let me give you a definition of salvation for you just to kind of think about more and hopefully lead you to greater worship and praise to God. Salvation is a supernatural work of God alone who effectually works in us the fruit of godly character while energizing us to gladly perform good works that accomplish his sovereign will in our lives and in the world. And that's what we see in verse 13, right? Paul then goes on with the reason or the grounds for why they should work out their salvation, for why we as Christians should resist sin and pursue righteousness. Look again in verse 13. He says, for, okay, very similar to therefore. It's a, it's a basic word that he's going to use to say this is the reason, this is the why. Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, the most impressive thing about you is not you, but God's work in you. The most impressive thing about you is not you, but is God's work in you. That means this, the most attractive character trait about you is not how you are measuring up to other people. And it's not how much you can accomplish your goals compared to someone else in life. The most attractive trait about you is others seeing Christ formed in you through your sacrificial love and selfless care for other people. You want to change the world? You want to make an eternal difference in your school? In the workplace? In your family? In your church? Then give them the most valuable gift they could ever receive. Give them the good news of Jesus Christ. And as you give them that good news, show them. Show them what a life looks like that loves Christ more than living your best life now. You see, the most valuable gift that we can contribute to this world is not getting the world to accept you or getting the world to agree with you. That's a lost cause. I mean, did not James warn us? In James 4, verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Beloved, please hear me on this. The most valuable gift you and I can contribute to this world is letting God use you in whatever circumstance he brings in your life. Sickness, suffering, injustice, or even death to draw others to himself through you. Wasn't that Paul's attitude? About his identity and goals in life? We read in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who? Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul wanted for the Galatian believers more than anything. As he said in Galatians 4, 19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Then he wrote to the believers in Colossae where Paul emphasized his mission statement, his ministry ambition, and the power he relied on to do it. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Again, when Paul was greatly used of God, where did the ultimate credit go to? Where did the ultimate glory go to? He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder 
than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Beloved, the most impressive thing about you is not you. The most impressive thing about you is God's work in you. This gospel truth humbles man's pride. You struggle with pride like I do? Remember, apart from God in Christ working in you, you can do nothing of eternal significance. The cord is unplugged from the wall. We are spiritually hopeless apart from Christ working in us. And yet at the same time, this is the very truth that should spur us on, should motivate us to take sin serious and following Jesus serious. That's why he said to do this with what? Fear and trembling. I think one of the most pervasive and often unspoken sins in the church is laziness, slothfulness, an unhealthy tendency to make excuses for oneself, to procrastinate, push off responsibility, to diminish any planning or any sense of hard work or self-denial for a worthwhile goal, a quitting attitude that results in codependency on others and prolongs childish immaturity even into adulthood. Instead of Christians working out their own salvation with fear and trembling, I think there's a common mantra in the church today of let go and let God. Almost a laissez-faire attitude towards our spiritual growth. But laziness, beloved, is a serious matter. Laziness is a sin. It's an abomination to the way God has made us in his image. Spiritual apathy is a slippery slope into full-blown, empty-as-all-get-out worldliness, godlessness, and I would even say kingdom of God uselessness. Any attitude that we have creep into our hearts that doesn't long for God to make us more like Jesus is the sign of spiritual unhealth. Some of us in here today are ensnared by certain sins because we've given up. We stop believing God in prayer or reading scripture. We just say it's just too hard. And some of us have lost our awe and fear of God. Sometimes our sin problem is not a psychological issue. It's not a genetic predisposition issue. It's a lack of fearing God issue. Beloved, laziness and pride are what prevent Christians from growing pride. You're too afraid to ask others for help. You care too much about what others think. If I shared this part of my life with you, you might think less spiritually of me. And beloved, that's the total opposite in the church. 
The church should be the one place where your weaknesses are exposed because our boast is in Christ, not in us. Any good thing we do is because of what? God in us. Beloved, there is no small sin to commit when there is only a big God we serve. There is no small sin to commit when there is only a big God that we serve. So where in your Christian life today do you feel like a total failure in your growth? Maybe you hit the stop button or the pause button or the coast button in your growth. Where have you become spiritually lazy in your pursuit of godliness? Put your finger on it. Because that's the very place God may be working on you next. Start with honest prayer. Because prayer helps us remember what we can't do, but God can. And start by opening up to other Christians in your life. Join a local church that actually cares about your godliness. Join a local church where the overarching theme is, I want to see you made more like Jesus, because if you join a church that does not care about your godliness, you will join a church that leads you from God. A church that enables spiritual laziness is a church that will be useless for the kingdom of God. Beloved, pray that CCBC would be a robust gospel preaching and gospel believing church where our overarching goal is to help each other become more like Jesus. Your salvation depends on God's work in you, not what you can do for God. Now, Paul thought necessary to exhort these dear saints as well as us today because he loved them, he cared about them, and he saw that their growth in salvation, their growth in sanctification would affect their witness in the world, which leads to point number two, your witness for Christ in the world shines bright when you love Jesus more than your best life now. So in verses 14 to 30, Paul begins with a negative example of what happens when certain sins are not put to death in our lives. And then he positively commends godly examples for the believers in Philippi to take note of. And so to press specifically on what the Philippians needed to hear, Paul begins first with an old sin, it's nothing new, that has plagued many of God's people, including ancient Israel, the sins of complaining and grumbling. We read in verses 14 to 16, do all things without, let's say it together, grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, or labor in vain. Paul reminds them and us today that a complaining Christian tells the world that their heavenly father can't be trusted. When a Christian uses their tongue or gossip or slander and speak ill of other believers, they divide the body of Christ. And when a Christian can no longer find anything to thank God for, this actually makes a bad witness for Jesus. It brings reproach and what he says there, a blemish on the name of Christ. You know, ancient Israel was plagued by this reoccurring grumbling, weren't they? Just three days after God had delivered them from Egypt, had saved them in such a powerful way, 
they began to quarrel and argue. They began to bicker about Moses, God's appointed leader for them, and complain that God had somehow abandoned them. They grumbled that God's chosen leader wasn't good enough for them, that he somehow did not have their best interest in mind. Brothers and sisters, our witness for Jesus starts with our everyday words. Our witness for Jesus starts with our everyday words. You see, theology matters because it affects how we view the Christian life, but our words matter because they reveal what's going on in our hearts. As Christians, we show off how gracious and compassionate our Heavenly Father is when we are thankful for who he is and content with what he gives and what he does not give us. You see, the world we live in, this perverse and crooked generation that lives life going in the wrong direction serves the God of money, the God of pleasure, the God of power, the God of self. And if you put your faith in any one of those things, it will in time fail you. And ultimately, it will lead you to live in worry and anxiety. Because any other God outside the God of the Bible is not a God worth trusting. Isn't that what Jesus taught his earliest disciples about worry and God's care for them? Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Beloved, contentment and peace flow from a heart that rests in God's sovereign care over you. Contentment and peace does not come from changing your circumstances. Contentment and peace is viewing your heavenly Father rightly. And when we put to death the corrupt desires of selfish ambition and jealousy in our lives, we'll, we'll begin to care for others' ambitions more than our own. Other people's needs more than our own. And other people's suffering more than just navel-gazing at our own suffering. And instead of holding on to our personal preferences and personal gain to obtain our best life now, we hold fast to the word of life as he says in verse 16. Did you notice that he said the word of life? He doesn't really explain more beyond that, but what is the word of life? 
What's the person and work of Jesus Christ? He is the life and light of the world. And when we believe in him, we become children of light. In other words, God turns on the light bulbs for us to see this life in light of eternity. As children of light, we hold fast to the words of Christ because in Christ we find the very words of life. So what are you holding on to today that is keeping you from holding fast to the word of life? What are you trusting in? A lesser thing that is only creating anxiety in your heart. Beloved, trust in Christ. He came to this earth and he died for our sins and on the third day was raised for our justification, not to steal and take away life from you, but to give it to you and to give it to you in abundance. Well, then in verses 17 to 24, Paul then uses himself and his young protege in ministry as examples of lights who shine for Christ. Witnesses for Christ who genuinely cared about the Philippians' well-being. Look with me, starting in verse 17. If I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I'll see what will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly, I myself, will come also. Listen, if there's anything that we should learn from this portion of scripture, it is the importance of genuinely loving one another. Did you notice how Paul had sacrificed himself for the spiritual good of others? In verse 17, Paul speaks about his life as being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. You see, beloved, when you and I are in total submission, uh, we ante up all the chips, we, we give our whole life under the authority of King Jesus you will then spend the rest of your life being spent for others. That is the way of the cross. That is the way of our master. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, if you're young in here and you're, let's say, under 20, one prayer that I was always encouraged to pray as a young person, even though I'm young, I'm just not as young as I used to be. But one thing I always used to hear at Christian conferences and youth rallies and camps was this, pray for God to use you. Let me tell you how God will answer that in time. If you ever pray, God, use me, God, use me, get ready. He's going to wear you out. Being worn out for Christ may cost you your life, but it is the best way to spend your life, and I mean every second of it. Jim Elliott, in his late 20s, 
prayed a similar prayer and shortly lost his life on the mission field. He once prayed, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Paul then goes on in verses 19 to 24 to speak about his plan to send Timothy, his co-worker in the gospel, to minister to the Philippians in Paul's absence. But if you've ever read this passage, you've got to be scratching your head. Why Timothy? I mean, did he go to a good school? Did he have big biceps? Did he have good hygiene? I mean, why Timothy? Why, why not someone else? What made Timothy, of all people, qualified to represent Paul while Paul couldn't be with the Philippians? Well, notice again what he says in verses 20 to 23. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You see, beloved, Timothy was a team player. Paul said, I got no one like him. He's one of a kind. He is first string because he's about the team. Timothy also had been tested. He had been given a proven worth. That's why you should never put anyone in leadership in the church that has not been tested first. That's why it's important that we be patient and slow before you lay hands on anyone too hastily. God often reveals their character through fire, through trials, and through observation. Timothy had gained a reputation of being a reputable brother in the ministry. But Timothy had something else about him that made him stand out even above the rest. It was his genuine care for the Philippians. Brothers and sisters, if you want to shine as lights for Christ in this dark world, remember this. People are meant to be loved not projects to be worked on. People are meant to be loved, not projects to be worked on. People usually don't care how much you know until they first know how much you care. So if you're an employer in your job, if you're a teacher, a coach, a manager, a CEO, do you hire people based solely off their resume credentials? Or do you also consider how they will treat others in your job? I want to encourage you, pray for God to give you wisdom if you are a leader in any organization. Pray that you would identify people who love people, care for people, and they show that with their life. Brothers and sisters, pray for me. In coming years, I hope this pulpit will be shared by much greater preachers than me much more godly men than me. Pray that whoever I prayerfully look to hire, that they be men who love you. That if I'm on my deathbed, or I'm on vacation, or I'm just chilling on the front row, that whoever is up in this pulpit will love you, will care for you. So brothers and sisters, pray for the future elders of this church. Pray that we will have men 
who desire to shepherd the flock more than the title they wear. Pray for future deacons in this church, for men and women who want to serve the church regardless if they ever receive recognition for it. Pray for women's Bible studies and equipping classes. Pray for our teachers to love you more than they do the act of teaching. And pray for all of us. Pray that we would examine our motives for why we want to serve in the first place. Do I view serving as an opportunity to show off my talents? Or do I view serving as an opportunity to bless others? Do I view this particular ministry as a project to boost up my self-esteem? Or as a ministry to serve people that I love? Pray, beloved, that CCBC would be a church marked by a genuine care for one another. You know, it's not uncommon in church life to ask the question on Sundays, hey, brother, how you doing? It's a fine question to ask. But you know, greeters at Walmart do that too. I want to challenge each one of us. Start off with, hey, brother, hey, sister, how you doing? But then every once in a while, I'll say, hey, grab a seat. I just want to spend a little time with you how are you doing really? Show that you genuinely care for one another. People are meant to be loved, not projects to be worked on. Paul then concludes this section in verses 25 to 30 by holding up another example of a bright witness for Christ, one of their own members, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus came from Philippi and he traveled all the way to Rome to find Paul. He may have been one of the deacons or overseers we read about in chapter 1, verse 1, but we're not really told. The Bible says that he was a messenger, one who represented the church and was sent to minister to Paul. But regardless, just like Timothy, Epaphroditus was trusted by this congregation. He had a godly reputation. He was one who had shown himself as a faithful servant to do God's work. Epaphroditus is also someone special to note in this passage, especially as we close this sermon. Keep in mind, Philippi is not like Barling to Fort Smith. Depending on which way he would have traveled, at the very quickest, it would have taken him six weeks to get there. But most likely, it would have taken him up to two to three to four months to get to Rome. This is not exactly an Uber ride or a short flight to Atlanta. No, this would have been hundreds of miles, and he would have been exposed to bad weather, disease, persecution. It's probably true that he had a few saints with him, not traveling by himself, but we're not told exactly if that's the case or not. But regardless, this task that God gave him through the church was not going to be an easy task. So much that verse 27 says he got ill. Ill to the point of death. And then it says that God had mercy on him and restored him. Brothers and sisters, God never promises a life free from suffering 
and death. God never promises a life free from sickness or distress. Any religion that promotes a your best life now or heaven on earth mentality is telling you a lie. Pastor Sean DeMars that I mentioned in the intro had to learn that hard the hard way when he believed in a false hope of a false gospel. We should also recognize that God had called Epaphroditus to do something very difficult. You know, one new little thing that we try to say in our household, uh, my mother-in-law does this with our kids when we're trying to teach them to do new things, was like, try hard things. Do difficult things. Like, actually do something that you might fail at. Brothers and sisters, God will do that in all of our lives. He will put you in situations where your weakness and your vulnerability is exposed. But it's in those moments that God lays out a platform for his work in you. You might be in here today and you are married to a difficult spouse and it's hard to love them. You might be in here today and it's difficult raising your children. Or you might be in a difficult job where you are one of the only Christians around. Or God might prepare you to send you to a place where persecution and rejection awaits you. But beloved, it's important that you and I study theology so we have right expectations about the Christian life. To make sure that our expectations of following Jesus actually lines up with Jesus' expectations for us. Like Epaphroditus, we might be called to a very difficult family life, difficult ministry, difficult health challenges. And yet it's in these moments where the body of Christ gets to come together. And when we are sorrowful, we grieve together. And when one member is honored, we rejoice together. That's why Paul told the Philippians, honor such Men, don't take servants like this for granted. Don't take a man who has sacrificed much, even his own life, for your good and Paul's good. Recognize them, support them, encourage them. Honor such men. So when you honor men and women who sacrifice much for the sake of the gospel, you are also honoring the Lord who sent them. Pastor Andy Johnson, a former colleague of mine, once wrote an article for the International Mission Board that I think is a good word for all of us today. He says, perfect safety is an illusion everywhere. Instead, gospel-informed wisdom should be our objective and God's goodness our refuge. We can't think about risk in a Christian manner unless we are convinced the gospel is worth dying for. We must join the psalmist in Psalm 63, ironically, that I preached a year ago today, and say, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Our people need to understand that in the pursuit of gospel ends, death is always possible, but never pointless. Following Jesus is the best way to spend your life even if sin, sickness, and suffering come with it, and you lose your life 
to find it with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not take our salvation lightly. Lord, energize us, excite us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is you who is working in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Lord, I also pray that you would convict any grumbling or disputing or discontentment in you today. And cause us, Lord, to be more selfless and sacrificial like Christ. Father, cause this church to be one of many churches in this community that shine as lights in the world as we hold fast to the word of Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.